Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. A warm welcome to everyone to another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Just like last week, we are going to have a three-way discussion here, including uh, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and myself. Chris Bloomstrand will rejoin us next week. We're going to start with Elliot uh, this time. So without further ado, Elliot, I'll go to you to kind of set the stage for the topic you have in mind. All right. Thanks, John. So I wanted to maybe pick up a little bit where we left off last week. I think we had a pretty fun conversation uh, looping in sports and use baseball again as a segue to talk about something high level and investing. Um, I mentioned last week that I really loved the book MVP Machine. Uh, I think it was truly fantastic. And there's something to learn for it for baseball and non-baseball fans alike. Um, And so you know, I mentioned this kind of um, call it facetious tweet I had about, you know, this explains why growth's been beating value for so long. And so I wanted to get into specifically what I was referencing and why and talk about some lessons from there. Um, so the the tweet used two pages from the book and explained how effectively, you know, Moneyball success inspired imitators uh, is a quote that's in there. And, you know, we could translate that into what we see in markets. Uh, Markets got more efficient, right? So the quote continues, the old days of getting something for nothing are over. There are too many good GMs out there now. Um, So every club was using stats and analysis to identify players, right? That's not too different than what happened in markets. Markets really got pretty damn efficient. And our peer group of other investors got to be really exceptionally good, really talented, really sharp. And, you know, I love many of you guys out there. So it's it's like I'm glad to be part of this incredible community and have great company. Um, but when you're kind of competing for alpha and your peer group is that good, it's it's really hard to stand apart. Um, so that, that was a challenge uh, in baseball and in investing alike. And then there's some specific points that I think are, are really important. So like Moneyball itself was transactional in nature. So what that means is to execute the Moneyball strategy, you obviously had your stats and your analysis, but you had to either draft, trade, or sign players who are underappreciated. And then you know what MVP Machine was focusing on is a transition from this transactional approach to an approach where you create value. So a quote from Chris Long, who is senior quant for the San Diego Padres, I think summed up the opportunity set nicely. He said, you can identify value or you can create value. Ideally, you do both, right? So developing players never really got much attention in Moneyball, um, but this idea of creating value, of focusing on different ways that you as an organization or you as a player could take what's already there and what you see and make it better. As a slight digression, there's a really great part in the book about Trevor Bauer, who's just absolutely dominating this year, um, and him literally engineering a pitch where they talk about how Bauer wasn't exceptionally talented as an athlete. 
when you look at the pure metrics, he doesn't really stand out on anything. Uh, but he spent so many hours working with, uh, I think it was former Boeing engineers, kind of figuring out the exact release point he wanted and the exact spin on the ball he wanted and where he wanted it going through the strike zone in order to engineer a pitch that would work against major league batters. And it became his best pitch. Um, and so that's an interesting story. So I want to kind of like take these things from this idea of getting a really efficient market and having to create value and talk about ways that like we as investors can think in these terms, because we can't actually like literally create value as investors, but we could pay attention to companies who are uniquely capable of creating value as opposed to companies who are simply merely statistically cheap. Um, so Buffett talks about the retained earnings test and it's a backwards way of looking at this, but it shows that it's something that that Buffett himself has always been cognizant of. Um, and he's specifically said, you know, my greatest investments weren't mathematical, they were unique qualitative insights. Um, so in the way of MVP machine, it suggests that we as investors, we could do better analysis and get better returns digging into the qualitative side of things. We could spend time on management and their incentives, a common recurring theme on this podcast. We could spend time speaking of former employees, practitioners in the industry we're studying, get to know competitors, know how they're positioned. We could be intimately familiar with the purchase decisions for customers. All these kinds of things go a long way. Quantitatively, we could focus our attention a little differently. Like in the past, you know, you'd maybe uh, build your DCF, think about margins, uh, what multiple to pay. You might look at comparable multiples. Um, you might look at the balance sheet, think about, you know, what those assets could be reproduced at. Um, but instead, you know, one, or in addition, one thing we could really do is think about the unit economics, what a customer transaction or subscription unit look like, right? What it's worth. We could then think about a margin structure there, how the company as a whole can scale into that opportunity or what the limits to scale might be. Um, and so work more granularly bottom up instead of thinking from this like holistic picture. Um, and then I want to like reflect on that quote that ideally you do both, right? You identify value and you create value. So to me, that's kind of a validation of the GARP approach to investing, right? The GARP, you know, I kind of speak in my own book here, but I, you know, self-describe as a GARP investor, uh, but it's the ideal approach because it blends both identifying value and opportunities to create value. Um, so it's not an either or, but we always have to stay grounded in valuation. You can't just go purely on the qualitative side because, you know, at a certain point, something's just not worth paying for. And then we have to know our competition for investment ideas, right? Like I was saying, incredibly sharp people that we're investing against or with. Um, and these are people of all different kinds of backgrounds, all different strategies. They, they, all these different strategies can make money in the market. So we have to respect the fact that we alone don't have the one true edge. Like there are many people out there who could contribute value. And then when you start thinking in terms of the value creation mindset, as opposed to the transactional mindset towards finding alpha, your gain is, it's not a zero sum world anymore. Your gain isn't someone's loss. Like you don't have to be taking advantage of someone to extract and create your alpha. Um, when your edge is creating value, there's no corresponding loser on the other side, per se. It's it's a little different, and it's about looking for companies who have that opportunity. Um, so I wanted to throw this out there as a theory for why growth has been beating value for so long, because a lot of these growth companies have different opportunities that they've exploited on the way to create value. Uh, they've done things like line extensions. They start their business in one place and evolve and 
go beyond that one place. So like Amazon, uh, saw someone tweet earlier this week, no one's 2001 DCF for Amazon had AWS in there, right? Who could have anticipated exactly where they'd create value? But if you paid attention uh, to what uh, Bezos was saying and to what Amazon was doing, you might've been a little more appreciative of their opportunity to go beyond merely retail. I mean, beyond what started as first party retail uh, to third party and AWS, et cetera. Um, so that's just an idea. And I wanted to present this as something to talk about, like what people, what, what you guys think uh, is the cause behind growth outperforming value so long um, or cause is, right? It's never necessarily one thing. And, you know, it, what you think of this framework. So I'll, I'll throw it out there to, to both Phil and John. Yeah, I mean, I think the framework obviously makes tons of sense. I think the frustration or confusion that I have over a lot of this is that um, it just boils down to a lot of semantics to me. So I think it just depends on how you want to define these various things, right? I mean, growth at a reasonable price, you know, what's reasonable? That's obviously somewhat subjective to different people. And I don't think you'd ever find somebody on the other side of that that says, I'm growth at an unreasonable price type investor, right? And even just growth versus value, right? I mean, I think even Buffett, Graham himself, anybody would admit that quantitatively cheap net style investing worked great for a while. It completely ceased to work or almost ceased to exist, um, you know, after a decade or two and, and you had to adapt and move on. And so I think that's the real genius of somebody uh, like Warren Buffett, who can take those principles over 50, 60 years or more and, and apply them consistently, but adapt the tactics. So in that case, I think that's more of what we're getting at here, which I totally agree is ideally you do both, right? You'd identify something that is cheaper reason you understand, and then you take that initial advantage and you exploit it even further by developing ancillary businesses like AWS or by acquiring other businesses using the cash flow you bought cheap or whatever the case may be. So I don't think it's necessarily sufficient to explain a lot of the market performance we've seen in the last five or 10 years. I ascribe most of that to either a poorly understood framework of growth versus value. Because again, if we're just measuring revenue growth as a factor against price to book as a factor, I don't think that is all that relevant and should carry all that much weight because I just don't think that's a meaningful comparison of anything that I care to focus on. But if you want to look deeper as to why some of these companies that you know are growing revenue at a very high rate and may have very questionable business models but are getting sky high valuations and why those are outperforming so much right now, that's a as you mentioned directly, that's a very multifaceted question. And and I don't have a a very clear answer for that anyway, but I, I could point to two or three or four things that are all going on. I think that's how these things usually work is you just get a confluence of events that all come together at a special time to get some some big, crazy results. So, um, you know, I, I would plant myself very much in the category of, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool value investor. And that, that only means to me that I want to get more than I'm paying for. And whatever that means, it, it could be different from... It is different from situation to situation, but and the best businessmen, the best operators, the best investors all take that advantage and look to parlay it. I guess the last, you know, to, to extend the, the tortured sports analogies we've made <laughs> recently, which have been fun and are actually very useful. I don't mean to disparage them, but you know, I think the European football soccer academies have probably been the best in the world is for a long time. I mean, that's how we got messy, right? Was not only did they identify a great 
talent at a very young age. I think he was 13 or something like that. But then it wasn't enough to identify him over in Argentina. They actually brought him to La Masia to the academy and, and brought him in-house and literally developed his talent over the course of the next 5, 10, 15 years plus. Um, so that's a perfect example of identifying and then developing. And look, it's been exploited by lots of other clubs. I mean, there are some clubs that have legendary academies like Ajax where they cannot quite compete at some of the highest levels all the time. So their strategy is more identify, develop, and then sell, rinse, and repeat rather than reaping the rewards at the first team like Barcelona does. But I mean, even Dortmund, you know, near and dear to my heart has been actually quite good recently at finding very young, precocious Americans in a, you know, quote unquote value market, because a lot of people don't think as, you know, don't think of the U.S. as a, as a very deep market for attacking teenage prodigies in this sport. But they've now got two examples of very good players that are, you know, were, were found, identified, and, and so-called purchased by, by Dortmund and while still competing at a Champions League level. Um, but then they develop those players additionally, right? It's not like you just stop there. It's not like, oh, great, I've signed this brilliant 16-year-old. I'm done. You know, you have to keep developing. And I think the same is true in investing, whether you're you know, managing a portfolio or whether you're allocating excess cash flow as a, as a C-level executive. Yeah, I'll jump in and Elliot, something you said about the zero-sum game or it not being a zero-sum game, I think is really um, a great point and something that's been a, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine when I hear people talk about the market and say it's a zero-sum game and for someone to outperform, someone has to underperform. Now, relative to an index, that's true, but it's not actually true in an absolute sense, because the market is supposed to be an efficient allocator of capital. And if capital is allocated poorly, we're not going to be getting as high of an overall market return, right? I mean, if companies that should never be able to raise money can raise money at ridiculous valuations and companies that should get the money don't, then we're going to start seeing the market return go down. And so I think you're absolutely right when you say that investors that kind of look at it from a value-creating standpoint, they can get a great return for themselves without impacting the return of somebody else because they are, in fact, kind of taking up the market return by a tiny notch, whatever their size and, and impact in the market is. But to me, it's not a zero-sum game, and that's just going back to the function of the markets as a capital allocator. And then I'll just kind of add on the um, on this idea of growth versus value. I think that you know what we've had in the quote-unquote growth space is, like you said, line extensions, value creation. And I think in the quote-unquote value space, what was really popular and where kind of the smart money was and everybody was enamored with was this idea of almost extracting value. I mean, think of Sears Holdings. You know, there, it was never really about beating Walmart or somebody on merchandising or even getting particularly good on merchandising. It was about extracting the value that was there and we all know how that um, fared ver versus competitors that were actually reinvesting in the business. So I think also what's interesting is 
we used to admire uh, these guys, uh, some of these value guys, value activists as great capital allocators. And the word was about people like Steve Jobs. Well, they're great operators, but they're not capital allocators. Actually, it turns out just the way history has played out in the last decade that those guys uh, who were great operators, quote unquote, turned out to be great capital allocators as well. If you think about a, a Jeff Bezos, for example. Yeah, right. That's a good one. Yeah, I think even Munger himself has called Bezos the best capital allocator here of this generation, right? How could you not at this point, right? Yeah, no, I think yeah. you guys well, both was, make some that great was probably, points. That was probably five years ago at least, I think, when he said that. But anyway. And the best was yet to come in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, no, I think that, John, you make a really powerful point talking about like riffing off of the um, zero-sum idea. Like when you think about the essence of a market, like a primary offering, what is it? Like a company that needs capital, uh, raises money from investor. In theory, it should be win-win for both. So like the the core essence transaction that markets exist to inevitably fulfill before the liquidity function is designed to be a win-win for both. So this whole evolution towards zero-sum wasn't an inevitability. And I think, you know, thinking about a value creating framework, um, you, you you kind of get away from that zero sum mentality. And, and uh, you know, I think it's so overall helpful. Sears is such an awesome example. I'm so glad you said that, but it really does stand out. Like it's kind of every value, uh, like call it a statistical scraping problem in one, you know, talk about discount to nav of the real estate side or, you know, just speaking in some of the parts in general. Um, and then you add in the cost-cutting element, um, the synergies of a large transaction. You know, these things were kind of the way for a long time. Um, and, you know, I think some of the companies that are the hallmarks of this, uh, you look at like the 3G companies in Bud and in uh, like Kraft, it's really had a comeuppance in, in recent years alongside the, the surge in these growth stocks or uh, wh- whatever you want to call them. Um, so I think that's that's a great example, really interesting to think about. And, you know, the, the whole growth versus value thing, I definitely agree that it's a bit of a misnomer, right? Everyone is thinking that they're the one who's pursuing value um, and it's done in their own way. No one will say that they're buying expensive stuff, but there are some people on the growthier end of the spectrum will say, you know, I really just focus on, you know, the quality and uh, maybe they'll, I guess one way to kind of absolve yourself of talking about valuation itself is to mention TAM and be like, you know, it's a huge addressable market and they have a lot of room to grow. Um, and that's where I guess I have a little bit more of a problem, especially now as you start getting to that situation of TAMs colliding once things hit a certain scale. Um, but Phil, you're totally right there. You know, no, no one's going to call themselves anything other than, than value. Um, and I guess, you know, Buffett said it best, value and growth are tied at the hip or however right. exactly it went. Um, and everybody's and best investments, whether it's him or anyone else, are going to have an element of growth, right? You know, look, I'm as sympathetic to anybody as taking a melting pool of cash and redirecting it in a more productive direction. That's a very healthy, very foundational role for any investor, any capitalistic enterprise to play. And I love it. But you have to do that over and over and over again because by definition there's a shrinking pool there there's a shrinking pie and you you know it runs off over time so you have to keep doing it so 
the best investment you could possibly make and the one that's going to drive the portfolio and the IRR that you're going to earn over time is, of course, by definition, something where you put in X and it compounds naturally for 5, 10, 25, 50 years if you get lucky, right? And those are the ones that really make, you know, like Geico, for example, where, again, I would argue that it's exactly what you described. He identified value and then he actually helped develop that value, at least incidentally at first, but certainly quite a bit in the last 20 years. And and that's probably been among, if not the number one, you know, in the top five investments uh, he's ever made. So um, I think it's, it's really crucial. The other point that I would call out here though, is like when you talk about this, you know, this growth mentality and, and revenue growth, I think the one thing that's still really clear to me and something I'm going to circle back to um, in the company I talk about next is just what level of growth is actually appropriate. Because I think when you look at the incentives that are in place in today's market, everybody's getting rewarded for growth, whether it's passive investors, whether it's, you know, venture capitalists, whether it's C-level executives, pretty much everybody is being incentivized to just show growth. And very few people, in my opinion, are being incentivized to show growth that is demonstrably tied to good economics. So there are plenty of LTV, lifetime customer value uh, calculations out there that will justify pretty much whatever you want. I mean, not to be too uh, pessimistic and, and skeptical, but I saw Peloton recently put out, we've talked about this, you know, 13 years is 154 months. And, and using that as the, as the denominator in their, you know, with their churn numbers in calculating the lifetime customer value that they're spending on apparently right now, God knows what they're spending on internally it might be something even more ambitious than that, but that's what they're putting out to the investment public in their investor presentation. I would posit that if you're really spending marketing dollars and R&D dollars and investing everything in the enterprise around retaining a customer at Peloton for more than 13 years, I would argue that's optimistic to the point of being borderline crazy because there are just no fitness companies that retain large swaths of their customers for more than a decade. So I think the jury is very much still out on how many of these companies will look back five and 10 years from now and say, you know, we spent like crazy to you know, acquire this customer, and then that customer really played back, paid back that investment um, with a great return on. The last time I saw this sort of speculative behavior was in the shale boom, frankly, with Audrey McClendon going out, running around, just literally signing up any lease he could find. Right, if he, if he could go find some plot of land where he could potentially drill on it, it was more just a question of what do I have to pay to get a signature on a page, rather than much about the economics of of what that was really going to be over the you know ensuing five and 10 years. And so I think when you have these land grab mentalities where growth is all you care about, you know, that, that can really lead to some adverse outcomes for the investors. Yeah. Although in some ways that's a little unfair to Peloton insofar as they haven't, they've been spending less per new customer and they haven't been like their bottleneck has been their ability to actually fulfill their, their orders more so than getting them. Uh, but I see exactly what you're saying on the LTV side of things. And I've seen that in a lot of uh, cases where some of the assumptions seem somewhat outlandish. Um, and I've got a little crew who we uh, bemoan one of our favorite growth companies actually shows EBITDA. Therefore, um, they get valued in comp groups on relative EBITDA multiples. Meanwhile, there are like inferior companies who are not making any money uh, who get valued on price to sales and therefore get like two to three, and in some cases, like 5x the multiple. Um, so it's almost like exactly what you're saying. The market is incentivizing companies not to right. show EBITDA 
uh, not to show any actual ability to generate earnings uh, and to throttle full force at uh, top line. Um, and you start getting to some pretty funky places when that's uh, the objective, when that's the end all be all. Um, and and I'm, like not trying example, to pick on, I'm not trying to pick on Peloton, by the way. You could be, so, I mean, look, you're definitely right about what their problem is right now, which is they could probably say our biggest concern right now is fulfilling demand because we're having a moment and this demand is off the charts and we need to do whatever we, we need to do to, to meet that demand. I get that to a large degree. And, and look, it could well prove to be that because there's a social element and because there's a connected element and because there's somewhat of a platform angle that it's not just about a stationary bike, that maybe they will really hang on to their customers for 13 years. But I know as an investor, you know, that's probably less likely than not. So, I, you know, I know which way I would bet, but, you know, we'll see. I, I, it's, I, I'm just pointing it out. And look, it's also not fair to compare oil and gas companies to software companies, for example, because oil and gas companies are massively capital intensive. And the economics of that business has basically never returned much in the way of operating cash flow. It's always been a capital markets finance business over time. And there are a lot of software companies, even if they're not showing much in the numbers right away, are demonstrably good businesses with very bright futures. And some of them are definitely going to work. So it's not like I'm saying, oh, this is just like the shale boom that turned into a shale bust, where it was pretty obvious at the time people were just overspending to acquire leasehold rights. But I do think there are some echoes in anything you look at over time and over history where there's just this speculative boom to try to grab as much land and opportunity as you can. You know, the majority of those people rarely come out ahead. If I can jump in, one one question or observation that kind of came to mind with uh, regard to this Peloton statistic or, or their use of a 13-year average life of a customer, how does um, cancellations and then people re-signing up, how does that kind of get considered in LTV or in that lifetime of a customer calculation? I'm thinking of Netflix as an example. You know, they make it very easy to cancel and then re-sign up. And I've done that at least, you know, five times with the family and so forth, where you just kind of drop the subscription a few months later, you come back. So maybe... I do agree with you, Phil, that when you think about 13 years, it's a long time, you know, but maybe if they can get to kind of that Netflix style um, revolving door, people may leave, but they may also come back. And I'm not sure how that's shown in the statistics, but it's definitely a possibility. You know, Elliot, I, I, I haven't read the footnotes on Peloton to know exactly how they account for that. So it's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Um, but it's a little different in nature too, because like they're still relatively new. Most of their customers have come in within the last few years, and most yeah. people did finance their equipment through a firm at zero percent. So, so long as you're paying the equipment off, you're going to pay for the uh, subscription. Uh, but I do think, as someone um, in the FinTwit stock picking competition, I actually picked Peloton for my short this year. And I like meaningfully changed my mind when I ordered one in April. Uh, you know, I pulled a complete 180 mentally, though obviously these are all paper trades. I never actually shorted a share, nor have I bought a share. But I do think that, um, you know, it's far broader than just a bike. They have a really um, 
they're, they're expanding their offering. Like talk about line extensions. They keep adding new things that add more value to other people. It works well for a household. And in the end, it's cheaper than a gym. And then if you look at like gym memberships, uh, it's the kind of thing that people pay as a way to kind of psychologically commit to going, whether or not they go or not. So gyms, people tend to not churn off. Unlike Netflix, Netflix, you know, is the kind of thing where you can churn on and off. And, you know, I, I think that matters. I know it's not an answer, but I do, I, I do think they're like caveats to all these things. Yeah, look, I think the John to John's point, I mean, Netflix has obviously proven many times over that they know what they're doing. But every time you drop the subscription and sign back up, there's at least some little bit of incremental cost that Netflix incurs to onboard you again. Maybe not, maybe close to zero, but there's at least somewhat. And it does kind of monkey around with the calculation that they're that they're doing in terms of you as a customer forever. If they have you for a year or two, lose you for three months, bring you back on. I mean, it's a little bit goofy. It kind of opens the leaves the door a little bit open to you doing something else and leaving forever, or a customer stealing you or competitor stealing you away or something like that. And like, yeah, in the case of Peloton, I get it. You spend twenty five hundred dollars on a stationary bike you're going to be committed to it more than a lot of other things, you know, a $30 a month membership. Um, there's a reason why things like planet fitness do all sorts of things to make it really difficult for you to cancel your membership um, because they know that's the key to the whole thing. I mean, in, in Peloton's case, you know, we'll have to see, I mean, I, I they call out, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, the whole total addressable market is the new, um, you know, way to analyze everything. And I, I totally get that too. There's a lot of validity to that. And they call out 60 million, you know, gym paying members in, in the United States and they have 3 million subscribers or whatever the number is now currently. And so it looks like this giant gap and opportunity ahead of them. Uh, we'll see. I don't think those, those numbers exactly relate and compare to each other, but, um, fitness has always been a big deal, a big market. It's easy. It's attractive to lots of people and lots of companies. And so I understand why investors would be excited about it. I really do. Yeah, I want to circle back around to, if you don't mind departing from Peloton for a second, to Geico, because I thought the Geico example was like truly phenomenal. Talk about creating value. But there's a second element to it that I wanted to touch on. I think it also gets at time frame, because if your time frame is pretty short, you can't capture opportunities to create value. If your time frame is pretty yep. short, you're not looking for angles to create value. You're not really cognizant of it. It doesn't matter. Um, so you truly have to lengthen your time frame, and I think that's a truth. Whether you are talking about a baseball organization, so some teams try to take shortcuts by signing a bunch of players and getting there faster, it's purely transactional. You're never going to create value that way. The only way you could truly do anything is by having a wallet much bigger than the next person, um, and that's proven time and again to kind of fail more often than it works. If you really want to meaningfully change around an organization, and you can look at, I mean, my arch nemesis, the Yankees. Uh, after their kind of, um, call it mid-aughts struggles, uh, they built, rebuilt from the ground up with a bunch of homegrown talent with a really changed approach as an organization, thinking longer term. Uh, I think that's a really, I think Ico is just such an awesome example because like, like, like you mentioned as well, like a lot of the value within the last few years has been truly phenomenal. So this, this is a process where like the longer that Berkshire has been involved, the more value they've been able to create at an accelerating rate. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting point that I'd like to kind of leverage and uh, hammer no, on. No, it's a great point. And, you know, going back to Amazon Web Services, you know, that wouldn't have been possible and wouldn't have mattered 
if you didn't have a, a you know a pretty long time horizon. And so all the things that Bezos has done to build up Amazon and all the successes they've had came because he was willing to to- tolerate failure and tolerate a longer time horizon. And so he identified several areas of value that were being underserved and then allocated capital toward those and then allocated capital that as they started producing more capital that he could spend there, he reallocated capital into new areas and just kept expanding and developing more and more talent as he went along. So it's, you know, you're right. Time horizon is absolutely crucial to the whole thing. How do you guys think about creating value in a space like oil and gas, let's say today, where you know that over time, renewables are going to gain market share and oil and gas over time, let's say the next decade or two or three, has to shrink as a sector. So can companies that are in that space really still create long-term value? Or is it about just milking the cash flow and then basically giving it back to the shareholders to reinvest uh, somewhere else? Because the companies have proven really bad at kind of um, shrinking their business as the industry shrinks. And uh, even today, you know, the best you're going to hear out of an oil and gas company is we're going to live within cash flow, which basically means we're not going to raise money, but we will still spend everything on CapEx. And obviously the goal for them is growth in reserves and production, but you cannot have growth in reserves and production on an industry level because that makes no sense because the industry over time is likely to shrink. Yeah, that's a great question. I would, to answer it directly, I would say that, sure, it's probably possible, but boy, it seems exceptionally difficult and not something I would want to take on or necessarily bet on. So I wouldn't rule it out as categorically impossible, but it's got to be close for all the reasons you said. I totally agree with the way you you framed it and laid it out. I, you know, I, I, I'm also not as close to oil and gas as I was maybe 10 years ago. I, you know, learned thankfully not too hard, but the hard way that it's a very difficult industry and one where you have to be exceptionally sharp and well-connected and paying attention to lots of different things that were just not in my circle of confidence. So it's just kind of been pushed to the side and ever since. I would definitely encourage everyone though to read some of the things like Bethany McLean has written a book called Saudi America and a lot of other things about it where it's exactly what you described, John, in terms of you know the incentives were always driven to be exclusively focused on productions and, and, and to a large extent in reserves as well, but particularly production. And if you were growing production and reserves, you were doing well and you were getting paid and you had almost unlimited access to financing. And so the financing driven growth of those metrics and the reinforcing angle of compensation and financing and everybody getting supposedly wealthy together in that feedback loop was really what drove this crazy upheaval in the market where, you know, shale and fracking took over the world and the US grew production so dramatically and all these companies took over the world. Maybe that's being unwound partially now because of geopolitical factors, partially because of economic factors, partially because of technological factors. Uh, I'm with you. It's hard to imagine a world 10, 20, 30 years from now where there's a bigger reliance on fossil fuels. Maybe it'll happen. I wouldn't rule that out either, but it would be really hard to bet on that. And so to your point, without that tailwind of of underlying fundamental growth, I think it's going to be really difficult. Yeah, I would echo that answer. And um, 
one thing I think about when you tell that story about, you know, their shares inevitably going to decline and, you know, in some ways there's nothing they could do aside for runoff. Think about the chapter on general cinema in The Outsiders. And like, if you get a unique uh, individual, someone who thinks a little differently, who's able to understand the value of what they have and appreciate that they can't invest it in their core business, but could find some natural uh, new areas to redeploy the capital for uh, better returns. I mean, that's a possibility, but at the end of the day, in a lot of respects, you really are just looking, uh, you know, as an outsider, for me being an outsider from the industry, like, I, I don't see much rationale for like an oil company tying themselves to a different kind of company, especially now where you have like kind of mandate restraints and all that other stuff. Um, so it's a really tough place to be because when you're running an organization inherently, you don't want to shrink, you don't want to be, uh, involved in shrinking it. I think, you know, uh, the, the mall REITs have like a similar challenge. We have way too many malls. The number of malls has to shrink. I gave like all of them some sort of look and only one I could think of who like meaningfully shrunk the scale of their business. The rest either, you know, have to continue to invest or whatever it may be, sell themselves to someone else. Um, so, I mean, maybe one of the answers is someone could perhaps kind of like smartly, if, if they could figure out which assets are cheap and which aren't in a transactional way, kind of roll up uh, some pieces at a discount and just you know, squeeze them dry. Um, but that's kind of, I don't know, this, this is all outside of my wheelhouse. So I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. Yeah. And I thought John was referring to creating value in the energy complex in the oil and gas complex without, so I totally agree with what you said. Like if you could find somebody that had that perfect skill set of operation, operational chops and financial capital allocation ability, I agree. It is possible for sure. And it could actually be an attractive opportunity for somebody to say, I'm going to buy these oil and gas assets really cheap, milk them down for cash flow and redeploy into something at least tangential, if not totally unrelated. That could totally work. But in terms of building like the next, you know, ExxonMobil or the next Chesapeake Energy or the next big, you know, oil and gas company that really takes things on, that's going to be tough. You know, consolidation is a way to do it. If the industry continues to be kind of weak, you're going to probably see more forced M&A. So people that can do that really shrewdly would be the way. I would assume you could really create a lot of financial value, but beyond that, you know, the, and these guys, by the way, have also tried this before. A lot of the oil majors, you know, used to own other semi-related assets like fertilizer assets, and it didn't generally end very well. So we'll see. And just maybe getting back to the broader uh, point, I think Elliot, you raised with this discussion is kind of how can we create value as investors, right? And and I'm kind of referring to value at the companies we invest in. I feel like with the old guard of activist investors or just active owners, it was much easier because those businesses tended to be more capital intensive. You could do optimizations and and whatnot, redeploying assets and so forth. Right now, as investors, we're basically just kind of lucky to be able to be along for the ride with these best companies in the world like Amazon, because they don't really need our capital. I mean, a Google really didn't even need to be a public company. This was a cash flowing business. It, so, so I guess what I'm saying is 
these best companies in the world today, they don't really need the public markets for the for their original function, right? Which is to allocate capital to them. So we're just kind of basically picking these companies and we're getting capital into the stocks because they're so highly valued. So you can actually put like a trillion plus to work uh, in theory into an Apple, but the business itself cannot put that much money to work. So I just find that kind of interesting that the role of public markets with regard to these best businesses is really kind of up in the air, you know? It's it's almost like providing liquidity for insiders and for those kinds of transactions for employees, but the business itself doesn't really need us. Yeah, no, that's Agreed. a great point. They really don't need us. I do think like once you get to a certain scale as a professional investor, there could be some opportunities to add value. And I'm not talking about activism, but I've now three companies in the last two years in my portfolio. I've helped either connect with uh, vendors in specific areas who could really help them or experts who could help them understand how to execute on certain strategies a little better in very specific areas where I felt it could be helpful um, and made introductions. Like those are the kind of things that we could do. Like as we have our own Rolodex, as we have people uh, who we speak to that are knowledgeable in areas, as we have companies who we've come to respect in different places, um, there's some things we could do to add value. And sometimes it could add up like considerable kinds of value, but for the most part, yeah, they don't need us for our money. Um, we've talked about companies maybe should focus on trying to get the right kinds of shareholders. So maybe we could help introduce the idea to people we respect in our peer group who we think would be the right kind of investors. But yeah, there's really not much we could offer. All right. Well, on that note, I guess we can uh, move over to Phil for the second uh, topic of the day. Yeah, this is even more related than usual. So this is a great, Elliot really teed it up perfectly in terms of what I was looking to talk about today, um, because I spent on and off several days, you know, maybe 40, 50, 60 hours over the past month or so looking at Snowflake, which IPO'd, of course, to great fanfare recently. And I think uh, it's an, a fascinating case study that I would encourage everyone to to undertake. I certainly, as usual, even more so, Every time is a new all-time record, but this is absolutely categorically not investment advice. I don't have a horse in this race. I would certainly encourage everyone to do their own reading and thinking on this. That's literally the point of what I'm recommending is that I learned a lot by going through this process because I went into it. I've never bought a security at IPO. I had no plans to buy this one at or after IPO. But I learned a ton, and I think it's very applicable in lots of different ways. And I think it is a, a fascinating window into a lot of things that are going on right now. So I would encourage everybody to just take a few hours even and just go through, scroll through the S1. It's relatively long and relatively dense, but with a little bit of effort, you know, even a novice and a Luddite like me can get up to speed on, on a lot of the, the key concepts here. So the, thing that's, the things that jumped out to me, and, and John Elliott, I don't know if you guys have looked at it at all, so feel free to either interrupt me with, with observations about the specific company or in general, because it's all topical as well, and it really ties into what we were just talking about. So the things that really jumped out to me were that unlike a lot of these unproven concepts and, you know, boy, how long is uh, it going to take to develop this network of, uh, you know, energy stations or whatever, it's going to be 
six years until we have something or we're going to IPO as a spec with no business to even acquire for a year or two, whatever. I mean, Snowflake was launched in 2012. It was in stealth mode for a couple of years. It started signing up customers at a rapid clip two, three, four years ago. And it has just been off to the races for the past two or three years and particularly this year. This is a very viable, very powerful, very strong, healthy business right now. So the question is just about how long that persists and at what great at what rate that persists. It's not about, you know, some pie in the sky dream down the road. This company is here now. It was designed and built from the bottoms up very intentionally. The founders came from Oracle, where they were in-house database networks. I don't know how much I can describe it. As an outsider, I'm not certainly a database expert or a data scientist, but building database software like this is very complex, very difficult. And what these guys pulled off as quickly as they pulled it off is enormously impressive. They're actually targeted by the venture capitalists at Sutter Hill and later elsewhere, but mostly at Sutter Hill to, to do exactly this. So this was a directional bet and picking some of the best kind of under the radar experts in the world to do it. And they've, they've succeeded wildly. So, you know, they, they basically take, for anyone who's not familiar, they take massive pools of data so think financial institutions or anyone with a customer said that, you know, big, diverse databases, uh, meteorology and weather databases, sports could certainly be an application, basically anything. I mean, you can store petabytes of data here and Snowflake is a way to clean it, organize it, store it, and then analyze it. So it kind of, and it's very user-friendly, the, the storage and the computing or querying are separated and the pricing is very flexible from the customer's end. So you can, you can pay in advance, you can pay in arrears. It's all very good from the customer's perspective. It solves a lot of use cases that, you know, were not easily solved before. And I totally get the commercial applications of it. I think the other thing that really jumps out is that the investor base here was in love with this company before it went public. The company was growing at a rapid rate and losing money, but not really burning that much cash. So to John's point, you know, there's no real need for this company to have gone public other than to, you know, cash out insiders. So um, one of the other things that, of course, got my attention as I was going through this, I'd start look, I'd started looking at the company when they initially filed the first S1. Um, but then, of course, right before the IPO, Berkshire Hathaway came in and invested $250 million in a private placement at the IPO price, along with Salesforce. Um, and they also invested several hundred million more at the same level to cash out the former CEO, the former CEO, but that private placement would have been more than enough to fund whatever cash the company is going to burn. You know, it might burn something on the order of a hundred million dollars over the next twelve months or so. You know, that, that could be off by fifty percent or more, but it's not going to burn a billion dollars or something. Um, even though they are losing money, they're not incinerating an irresponsible amount of cash to to do it, and so it was certainly not necessary for them to raise money to fund the business day one, which it gets to the second question beyond the curiousness of the private placement and Berkshire's involvement, um, which is why do the IPO at all and why do it the way they did it? So this company actually raised venture financing in February at a $12 billion valuation. Uh, when they initially kind of targeted coming to the market in an IPO, a lot of people assumed in their initial filing sort of implicitly backed into and then explicitly said, we're going to go maybe for a 20 or $30 billion valuation. It ended up being closer to $40 billion. And then the day one initial trades, and even where it's trading today, we're all closer to $75, $80, $85 billion. We'll come back to that in a second. So 
They left a massive amount of money on the table. This has become a very hot topic lately. Bill Gurley at Benchmark has written and talked about this a lot as to how inefficient and, and really bizarre and obscenely wasteful the IPO process can be. And that's where a lot of these SPACs have come in. They come with their own drawbacks. That's probably a separate podcast topic down the road. Um, but this IPO process in particular stands out as really just eye-popping in a lot of different ways. And, and in terms of the business itself, some of the things that, that jump out that I'd, I'd be curious for everyone's uh, thoughts on is, you know, getting back to the total addressable market, which we were talking about earlier, you know, the concept of the day, the buzzword of the day. In the S1, unless they updated it, which they, they may have if I missed it, but they, they initially laid out the total addressable market as $81 billion total. The total market opportunity, the run rate revenue currently is somewhere around a half a billion dollars. It'll probably be at the rate they're growing, they'll probably be at a billion dollars of revenue next year, uh, next calendar year. So not that far away, uh, but in an $81 billion market, they do cite the opportunity for the total addressable market to grow considerably over time. And I would certainly expect that to be the case as well. But what really jumps out to you is, is the adjusted market cap today is now bigger than that total addressable market. When you add in all the in-the-money uh, options warrants, restricted share units, uh, the, the, the market cap today stands about $85 billion. So pretty eye-popping to see that, that sort of number. Pretty eye-popping, of course, to see you know, 200 times sales trailing 12 months and you know, 100 to 150 times forward sales. Uh, you, you know, these, are, these are big, big numbers. So um, the other thing that jumps out just about the business, though, is the, the margin profile. I mean, the gross margins here, unlike a traditional software company or even software as a service company, this kind of started as a database as a service company, but they they really didn't make as much money, at least at first, as a lot of the others, because the way the business foundationally works is they basically rent cloud storage space from Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, and Google Cloud. And so that sort of scales a little bit, and they're getting some pricing power there. They're, they're negotiating better rates as the customers come on and as they get more scale, but they are buying that space directly from those big three powerful companies. And they're, they're actually competing directly against those big three powerful companies in a lot of ways, and maybe even more so in the future. Um, so unlike a lot of software companies where you just write some world-beating piece of software, and then particularly the incremental margins are exceptionally high, but even just the day one gross margins are you know, 70, 80, 90%. In this case, they were in the mid 40s. They're even now just approaching 60%, so quite a bit lower. And then, you know, the sales and marketing numbers are really off the charts. Sutter Hill was actually running most of this operation for for large periods of time, but the sales and marketing numbers are running like 70% of sales uh, in recent periods. That will likely scale way down, right? As, as these customers are onboarded and persist for a while. But, you know, the the opportunity is massive, right? I mean, even if you think the tro- total market is only, quote, only $80 billion, you know, it makes sense to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars chasing as many of those customers as you can right now. Um, so may not scale down quite that much in the next year or two or five, who knows? But um, it's a pretty, pretty high number. I mean, again, the good news is, you know, on five or $600 million of sales, um, they'll probably lose you know, half that much in, in operating profit, they'll probably post a two or $300 million operating loss and probably burn a hundred million or something of cash. Be that as it may, you're looking at, you know, half a billion, give or take of sales right now. I, the simple math of it is if that grows at 50%, 
the compound annual growth rate for the next five years, that only gets you to less than $4 billion of sales five years from now. They're growing at 100%. They're growing at 122% sales growth year over year in the most recent quarter. They're growing at 20 25% quarter over quarter right now. So we'll see. I mean, maybe for the next five years, they really double every single year. Um, that would be crazy, but it's certainly in the realm of the possible. Um, but you, you know, those are the kinds of numbers you almost, for the valuation work, you almost need those numbers to come through. So it's going to be awfully interesting to see. I wouldn't want to bet against them, but those, those, you know, that's the math of it. And I think people need to be aware of it. The other thing that I think will be very interesting to see is, you know, just how many enterprise customers will really adopt this? There are going to be other options down the road. For now, this is a little more user-friendly. Some of the really bigger, sophisticated enterprise customers have not jumped on it quite as quickly as you might think. Maybe they'll get on board here shortly. There's plenty of small and, and mid-sized companies that'll probably jump on board. But then likewise, I mean, how many of the big tech companies, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, to name the three most important, uh, how are they going to respond? Are they going to continue to kind of peacefully coexist in this sort of symbiotic relationship? They're not, Snowflake's not all that meaningful to them right now, but you know, it's it's hard to predict the exact competitive response at least five years from now. Nothing will probably change this year, next, even the following. But um, those are kind of the big issues um, that I would call out and the things that, that stood out to me. So John Elliott, I don't know if either of you looked at the company specifically. If so, that'd be great. If not, you know, just some of these these numbers and concepts and, and your thoughts. Yeah, so I first encountered Snowflake when uh, my analyst Ari was doing a deep dive on Alteryx or Altrix, whichever you want to call it. And there was a short report that was like snowflakes eating their lunch and, you know, really started trying to get to know Snowflake, at least from the perspective of people who used it. Um, and, you know, got various responses. A couple of people were like, yeah, yeah, they're, you know, nibbling at the edges um, or more like, you know, they actually work kind of well in tandem where Altrix is uh, the data prep tool for analysis where you pull it together and then snowflakes. Um, you know, is is kind of your analytics database on top of that. Whatever it is, like, you know, didn't really go too far with either of the companies. But like one of the things that had always rubbed me the wrong way about Alteryx is they talked about this $50 billion TAM. And you look at Tableau and they talk about a similar size TAM. Then you look, Google paid $2.6 billion to buy Looker. There are other companies like Databricks and like every single one of these companies that's out there. And, you know, like uh, Salesforce had obviously bought Tableau after I kind of did the work in the space. Um, you know, every company that that does this sort of stuff is trying to push in uh, vertical directions up and down. So like at a certain point, you know, like you could talk about having these massive TAMs, but the TAMs really do collide. And they, um, you know, are going to be, I, I, I'd prefer for these companies to te- speak about like, I don't know, maybe a SAM, like a serviceable addressable market instead of a TAM, because it's just like so irrelevant at a certain yeah. point. And it's just like something that I don't think is helpful to investors unless you're trying to like obfuscate from what you actually want them to hone in on. Um, so like I was saying, like, you know, kind of build these companies up from a unit economics and think how many customers they could get. I mean, when, when we were working on Alteryx in particular, they do everything possible to make sure you can't understand that. You can't understand like how many licenses they have with a different enterprise or anything like that and how many seats. You know, they'll tell you, you could get a rough estimate uh, backing into it of how many servers, because they're not, Alteryx isn't 
purely cloud, you could figure out like, you know, server versus uh, license economics and all that sort of stuff. But they, they don't want to tell you what you need to know to truly value the company, but they'll keep pointing you at TAM. And it just drives me nuts. So like, obviously, we've, we've never had much to do with any of these companies. Um, as for the IPO process in particular, there's one thing I want to like kind of uh, hammer on. Uh, Bill Gurley keeps talking about how the IPO process isn't fair to companies and all that sort of stuff. That to me is one of the biggest loads of garbage. And I'll tell you exactly why. If you look at how many shares Snowflake has outstanding versus how many shares actually float, so the amount of shares that they sold, the company, uh, you know, you, and some of these shares are primary shares sold. Some of them are secondary. Secondary meaning like the venture capitalists who are in there were selling their shares um, as opposed to the company actually selling newly issued shares to kind of take the money for themselves. Only 12% of their actual shares are floating. So it's not like the company really got hosed here. They didn't really sell very much of the company. Most of the company's owned by exactly who owned it before. They just have a public listing and they have some shares out there. And this 12% number really does matter because when you're floating such a small percent of what like the total public market cap is, so you look at their like $75 billion market cap or something, you know, only 9 billion of those shares trade. So to move the value of this company a whole lot, takes way less transactional volume than it does to, to move a company who floats all their shares in that size. Um, and there's a reason why companies do it this way, because when you purposely release a very limited number of shares to the public and have everyone else commit to some sort of lockup that holds them for, for a decent amount of time afterwards, um, you're creating artificial scarcity in shares and you're creating a sort of artificial pop. And that was like always by design. Um, so, you know, I really think, um, companies don't necessarily get hosed. They purposely sell a small amount of shares in the beginning. And you look at a company like Shopify, they're kind of selling shares every step along the way as they go up. That's an opportunity that's out there to them, um, as they want to kind of, you know, create supply to meet the amount of demand that's there. Um, so, you know, it's not about maximizing every dollar on day one for the company. It's about creating a good stable shareholder base for the long term. And I think like both the actual process today is a disservice to that. You're actually creating instability by having such a tight float and creating incentives for uh, those who buy initially to be flippers. Um, and, you know, it's kind of unstable to have everyone who actually owns everything dump their shares all at once. Um, so I'm not sure what the right answer is, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on both the TAM and the uh, IPO kind of uh, thing. I totally agree with you on the TAM thing. I don't think I have much to add there because I think I totally agree and couldn't say it any better than you did. As far as the IPO thing, like you have some very valid points there. I would just push back. And, and look, in a case like this, it's even more extreme because it's such a small percentage of the float. The company didn't need to raise any money at all, as I mentioned, so it gets even more bizarre. But look, I mean, I think the, the point that stands out is, is one, you're correct. You don't need to maximize every single dollar on day one but it something is clearly not normal or rational when you view a 100% pop in the price as a victory, or even a 25% price in the pop as a victory. Because what, what these banks do, I mean, it's not any sort of secret or brilliant analysis. They go out, they take all these meetings, they want basically everybody or 98, 99% of the people who take a meeting to commit to being in the order book. Most of them don't get any shares anyway. And they want 30, 50, 60 times the demand for the actual shares they have to sell. 
which just begs the question, like there's no clearing price there. If you have 60 times more demand for an asset than there is supply, you raise the price, right? I mean, that's just common sense and basic economics. And that's why these direct listings that have been around in, in fits and you know starts over the years and taken a little more precedence recently. I mean, Spotify did it a few years ago. Their CFO is very prominently in favor of that and rightly so. And even Palantir did it last week or a week or two ago. And, and, you know, some VCs are pushing more in that direction, but so, yeah, I look, I agree. It's overstating it to say like the company got completely hosed or, you know, left X on the table because the, the number is probably less than X when you're, when you're looking at it that way, but the whole process is just upside down. And it's a vestige of when wall street banks that were leading the IPO process were literally just trying to cater as much to their best institutional clients as they were to find the optimal day one clearing price to, at which the market could function and allocate capital to these new shares being brought in. And look, you want to build a steady book and you want to have the price somewhat stable. And that's been made increasingly difficult as specialists on the floor of the stock exchange have gone the way of the dodo bird. I totally get that. One thing I would actually, I'm not sure if you were trying to say this, but if you were, I would disagree with it, is that there's almost no thought in this entire process to creating a rational, long-term, stable investor base. They really don't care. Right? The company puts almost no effort into it. They're just taking these meetings because their bankers told them to. And the bankers are just trying to place these shares where they think they'll go well and please their clients. They really don't have any thought to like actually building you know, what Larry Cunningham and I talked about as like a you know, quality shareholder base. That's really not an ingredient in the process. And I think that's a shame because it would be better for everybody if it were. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you there. Uh, definitely agree with that point. And it's one point I would have made it I gone slightly further. It's that um, none of this is about actually investing, like to get, right. I, I think the whole right. process is geared toward flippers. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the only way you kind of get these things is if you know someone and they give you access, if you have a good relationship with your broker. Um, and you know it's going to be like printed money, and the only the the only barrier to entry is 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 that relationship. Like I've tried to get one IPO ever since I've been doing this professionally as Roku, and I got shut out. And that was one that even got underpriced, got pushed down as they were going to come public, which goes to show how long I liked Roku for. So um, that's it's funny that you mentioned that because just yesterday I had a call with a, a really successful but small niche privately held company that's a customer of Snowflake. And so I was interested in talking to both sides for their perspectives on various things. But one of the things the CEO made a comment on was that he's been a Snowflake customer for years. He's been an evangelist for the company. He's, I, I don't know if he was quoted in the S1, but they're listed in the S1. He's been quoted in the press singing Snowflake's praises. And he, and he knew right away that this was going to be successful. And again, I think any idiot could have looked at this and said, this is going to be a hot IPO. And he actually went to Frank Slootman as recently or as early as like a year ago and said, please, can I get some friends and family shares? And then he went to, he had his money at uh, Morgan Stanley, I want to say it was, and he, he went to his private banker at Morgan Stanley. This guy's pretty wealthy. He'd already sold one company to Google years ago. So he had a big private client account at Morgan Stanley and went to his private banker at Morgan Stanley and said, can I please get some IPO shares here? I'm a big customer. I'm a good client of yours, et cetera. He couldn't get a single share, right? I mean, it's just such a ridiculous process. It really is. It's unreal. And, you know, I mean, it's something that has to be a little different. Uh, I, I want to, I guess, add two more things that I'm kind of thinking of off the top of my head. But one is that, you know, I think part of this has changed as companies, like you mentioned, Spotify, companies are staying private much, much longer. And right. so formerly they had to go public in order to 
find pools of capital to actually raise money for themselves. And now they don't need that at all anymore. If you're a good uh, private company, like access to capital is definitely not a problem at all. Um, so you're really only going public when your existing shareholders want to sell. The other is I should give a call out to, I think, a truly fantastic blog post uh, on the blog Quack Chain. Uh, Kevin Quack uh, has a, a fantastic write-up on the Mike Spicer. I might be pronouncing the name wrong, Incubation yeah, Playbook. The Sutter, the Sutter Hill guy that did this, yeah. Yep. Exactly. It's really fantastic. Yep. It's really interesting. He's so different than the typical VC. And like he was the CEO of this early too. Right. And the incubation yeah. in history is really, really fascinating. And I strongly recommend people check that out. No, I just pulled it out. That's a great recommendation. Thanks. I haven't read that yet. But yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, he was the first CEO. He hired the second CEO and then was instrumental in firing the second CEO and bringing in the third CEO, Frank Slootman. And, you know, along the way, it was really like, the puppet master pulling all the strings at this company. And that's, you know, they've, they've sort of talked behind the scenes about the portfolio or incubation approach they have to venture capital, but it's a very, very interesting angle. I agree. Yeah. Truly unique. It's really cool to see. It's actually kind of like, um, so hard to replicate. And I wonder how you'd spot someone trying to replicate it, but it's really just different, smart and the returns like when you could uh, do it successfully are pretty amazing. Yep. I'll just jump in real quick on this IPO process uh, discussion. You know, one one thing that kind of gives it away, I think, that the process isn't there where it should be is just how much these uh, investment banks make in an IPO. Yeah. I think it's still like 5 to 7% of the amount raised by the company. And if you think about that, you know, if I'm a founder, I might have been building up this thing for 10, 20, 30 years, whatever. And if I'm actually raising a, a meaningful amount of money, that's a ton of money to go to uh, some bankers that are working on this for a few weeks. So, you know, that whole, the pricing, I don't think is a, is a free market. And no investment bank has actually gone out and said, we're going to do it for less. And I don't know if that even would have mattered uh, just given uh, you know what a what a close-knit club uh, that is and then the other thing yeah I it something is not right when you have you know an asset priced and then the next day it's up a hundred percent but that said you know I think Elliot you make a good point that that's kind of the game they want to play even the companies want to play that game or the insiders at the companies want to play that game because you know, just like we all acknowledge now, whoever is buying those IPO shares at the IPO price pretty much knows they're going to pop if it's kind of a hot IPO, you know, it's multiple times oversubscribed. And so I think as someone who is signing up for shares in the IPO, you're not really doing a hardcore valuation here, you know, <laughs> a lot of the time. And if you thought this thing wouldn't pop or if the process was improved to the point where this thing had a as big of a chance of going down as up on day one, you might do a much, much bigger valuation exercise internally and that could actually depress pricing of all these IPOs. So maybe this is just the way they figured they could actually get the most money. You know, it's kind of like 
in um, in auctions, in like Dutch auctions of of uh, I don't know whether it's used for Spectrum or what have you, but I had a friend of a friend who basically designed the best way to get the highest price in an auction. And it's not that the highest bidder pays the price that it bid. It's that the highest bidder pays the price that the second highest bidder bid. So you are in set, and you know, this is this, there's there are papers written about this, but it was like empirically proven that when the winner actually pays the price of the second highest bidder. The ultimate price is going to be the highest. <laughs> so oh, you know, this makes me think about Google, right? Because they went public in a Dutch auction and like, you could look up the did, headlines. Yeah. Everyone's like, it was a disaster. Oh my God. Like how terrible. And yeah, meanwhile, I mean, for the average investor who got it, it was pretty, pretty awesome. If you were an investor with a longer time frame. And then on the second price, that's really interesting because I, I, I asked that because I, I'm pretty sure Google recently went away from second. Google had validated those studies and, and used them to design their bidding prices for actual ads. And that's part of why they went IPO this way. Uh, but they said they, they are doing away with second price and going to first price because um, they felt it started restraining some bidders and that they thought they'd get a higher price, a uh, better clearing price with first price. So just want to throw that out there, but everything you said made me think about Google. Interesting. Yeah, and I would just, switching topics now, but the TAM issue that, that you mentioned, Elliot, I just think that is such a huge point and so underappreciated that I feel like there should be, you should, you should write a big blog post or a white paper or something about this idea of, of colliding TAMs because that is just so not part of the mainstream thinking right now that, and it needs to be, and I think it would have a big impact on how people view, you know, the ultimate valuations that some of these companies can, can get. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been thinking about it. How, uh, you know, that song, like the more we get together, the happier, the happier we'll be the kids little ditty diddle. Um, you know, I think I, I've had this line in my head, like your Tam is my Tam and my Tam is your Tam. The more we grow together, the clashier we'll be. Uh, because it's like really the truth, you know, the faster any of these companies grow, the the sooner they converge on one another and the more uh, competitive the landscape gets, you know. It's similar to what I was saying with Dropbox and, and Slack. When you're small, you could grow kind of unconstrained by competition. But like, you know, the TAM's not really that big. They can't really do it. And I've had an affinity for companies that speak more towards their SAM than their TAM. And uh, maybe I should write that. <laughs> Let's just agree that GDP is everyone's TAM and then, you know, we can get that point finally. With <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you there. All right. Well, that's all I had. I, I, I haven't really looked at Snowflake much um, just because of, you know, thinking about base rates and where I want to invest my time. I don't think I can have any kind of Real insight there, and just given where the valuation is, I'm, you know, it's not the kind of bet that I would really entertain. No, me either. I I only look at it like I said. I'm always trying to learn, you know, around the edges of what I can understand. This certainly pushes that limit. I'm still a naive amateur 
layperson Luddite here. So this is not some area of deep expertise for me by any stretch. And like I said, not only would I probably not buy almost any IPO, I certainly wasn't planning to buy this one. But the combination of personal interest, a personal connection, I have a cousin who works there, you know, then the Bircher news came across um, and just in this one company in this one situation, I just couldn't resist. And it, you know, you know, some people might look at it as kind of a waste of time of spending any, any meaningful amount of time on this, but it's actually, I thought it was very helpful and it's actually helped me frame a lot of other situations that are happening today. So. And meanwhile, here I am, the guy who last week was singing my praises for the uh, busted IPOs. Like I tend to really read a lot of S1s and I was like, yeah, this one's going to price so aggressively that to get to the point of bust, it's going to take me years. So I'll wait for now. Oh, it may. Yeah. And I'm with you. I think busted. And look, S1's just as a reading exercise. Like, again, I've never bought anything at IPO or even like, I can't imagine I've ever bought anything inside of several years of IPO even. I'd have to go back and double check that. But they're a great source of information. I mean, just like a disclosure statement or something coming in and out of bankruptcy. I mean, this is a really in-depth look at a business that you don't get on an annual rolling basis. So it's it's worth spending some time on these. Yeah, they're great documents. And you know, just one little uh, point or thought I had on, on the Berkshire investment. Now, obviously, if you're getting the IPO price, it's hard to go wrong with that. But doesn't it also change our perception of Berkshire a tiny bit? as kind of not behind the times and not totally stale and not like completely, you know, uh, absent from what's going on in the world. And, you know, just kind of, I'm sure that's not why Berkshire invested, but I do think it helps them in that department. And, you know, maybe it, uh, it ups their multiple just ever so slightly if investors think that Berkshire actually has access to these kinds of deals and is willing to do them. Yeah, I'll say this. I mean, I, you, you could well be right. Um, that, that's a reasonable thought in that regard, I guess. I, I would say that I have not, I don't have any special information about how this went down. So we're, I'm purely speculating as to uh, the motives. One thing I will say, though, is a pet peeve of mine is it drives me completely insane when I read probably 10 different published pieces about this, blog posts, S1 teardowns, you know, media reports, whatever, saying that this was Buffett himself, literally like the man in the flesh who, who made this investment, when we can say with like 99% confidence that this was not Buffett himself, that it was someone else in the organization, barely likely Todd or Ted with a reasonable speculation as to which of the two it was. So that that is just kind of intellectually lazy and dumb, but it did drive a massive, I think, amount of acceptance, even among the non-Berkshire fanboys out there. I think there was a massive amount of excitement in the investment community, in the tech community writ large, that there was this imprimatur of Berkshire and Salesforce, both coming in in a private placement concurrent with the IPO. And it gets back to why I mean, not only does it maybe tear down this notion that Berkshire's behind the time, but it, it behind the times because they've, they're really not ever been really that far behind the times in anything. They've always been willing to adapt and learn, but it does bring up two maybe more troubling conclusions, which is one, you know, they deployed somewhere around $700 million in this thing at, I think, $120 a share. It's trading at $240 a share. So good for them. They made a quick three quarters of a billion dollars on paper. We'll see if they hold it. I have no idea how this is going to unfold from here. But even that, because Berkshire's so gigantic, is awesome, but not exactly a Geico-type situation that 
you know, really drives the company's IRR over time. And then secondarily is, I mean, one of the reasons why I think Buffett never did these types of investments before was he didn't want to encourage too much coattail riding in an IPO process. And in this case, it definitely happened. And I'm not here to say moralistically, there's, you know, that's, I'm not preaching about it one way or the other, but it's definitely a change, right? If, if Berkshire is now willing to do this kind of stuff and, uh, We'll see. Again, I mean, the, the future is uncertain. I, I really could see this going several different ways, but who knows? Let me ask you guys on that thought, right? Do you think it's possible that the key insight was perhaps one of the subsidiaries like using Snowflake in a way where they're like, this is completely mission critical, irreplaceable. It's the best thing we've ever seen on this. And, you know, well, I would think that's very likely. Yeah. I, I, I looked actually and I didn't see any direct. Uh, they published maybe 30 big enterprise customers, Geico and BNSF were not among them, which would have been two of the more likely candidates, mm-hmm. um, uh, unless I missed it. But I think you're exactly right. I mean, that's a very common way for them to source investments. Uh, you know, that's even how I think Buffett did source IBM, which tech or not, you know, not very successful. But it, and But again, a lot of his most successful investments have come that way. And I know that other people at Berkshire source investments that way for sure. It's not real likely that this was just a IPO roadshow knock on the door, but maybe it could have happened. But I, you know, again, I didn't see Geico or BNSF. Uh, I'll double check, but um, I think you're right though. There, there had there's probably a customer in there somewhere that had some. Yeah, you know, Geico's not listed in the S1. Neither's BNSF. But anyway. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have an insight here, other than maybe also uh, Elliot to your point earlier about some of these allocations just being kind of done as favors or to drive other business. You know, it may have just been some banker that's close to Berkshire, kind of saying, "Hey, this is uh, free money. <laughs> Take it." It could have been. Yeah, it's possible. Again, I would just be totally speculating. I wasn't obviously there. I didn't talk to anybody who knows, and so yeah, I don't know. Well, before we devolve into just pure speculation here, <laughs> I think we'll uh, we'll call it the day and uh, look forward to reconvening next week uh, when uh, Chris uh, will rejoin us. So thanks all for listening. Great to have you and uh, goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.